Hey, good morning, Cedar Mill family. Super happy to be with you this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And my name is Bethany. I am also one of the pastors here. Hey, before we get started, we just want to keep it real with you. We are not in our living room. This is definitely not our living room. We have been at home with stay-at-home orders with six kids for the past two months. And if this were our living room, there would be plenty of laundry thrown around. Our four-year-old is into cutting paper right now, so there'd be piles of that and definitely some Sharpie on that couch over there. But we're super excited to be here and we're super excited to continue our series in the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And we're actually gonna be in Daniel chapter three, verses one through 18 this morning. And we're gonna look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you spent any time in a Sunday school classroom while you were growing up, you've probably heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I actually still remember the little flannel graph characters. But we believe that there's something in this text that's incredibly relevant to each of us, especially now. But before we go any further, let's go ahead and pray. God, we just give you this time. We welcome your spirit um, into all of our homes, Lord, and we just um, pray that you use your word this morning to just change us and transform us into people who are more like you. And we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So friends, before we unpack our text this morning, I want to say one thing. As we go through the book of Daniel, we're going to be introduced to all kinds of different individuals. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to meet King Belshazzar, Darius, of course Daniel, and today Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's a temptation to focus our attention solely on these individuals. But the book of Daniel, as with the whole of Scripture, desires for us to focus our attention on our unchanging and faithful God. But with that said, let's go ahead and unpack our text this morning. At the beginning of chapter three, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this large idol or image out in this open plain. And Nebuchadnezzar, never being one to do things understated, has built this thing like nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. Now, if you remember last week in chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar had this vision and by the power of God, Daniel was able to interpret that vision for him. Remember the golden helmet, the silver breastplate, bronze, etc. So while this 90-foot image that he's erected out in, the, in this open plain may be himself, I think it's more likely it's an image that reflects that vision from chapter 2. Now, I know you VeggieTales fans are disappointed it isn't a big chocolate bunny, but let's move on to verses 3 through 5. In verses 3 through 5, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has gathered all these individuals out to this open plain and instructed them that when they hear the music, they should bow and worship this image. To put it simply, these individuals are Babylon's finest, all the leaders, all the influencers. But then in, in verse 6, we see what the consequences will be if they don't bow when they hear the music. King Nebuchadnezzar is taking this very, very seriously. He says, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. He bypasses all penalties for misdemeanors, all prison sentences, and goes right to the death penalty. And he says, if you don't bow, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. So then, verse 7, cue the music, the band strikes up their song, and boom, everybody bows to worship this image. Except for three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Friends, can you imagine what it felt like to be those three young guys just standing there saying, 
we ain't going to bow. All the people around them, they are their colleagues, their friends, people of power and of influence. Friends, the social pressure had to be tremendous on these three young men, and not to mention the threat of death. Yet we hear the first that Nebuchadnezzar hears of them not bowing is in verse 8, when it says, Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, who are the Jews? Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But why are these Chaldeans maliciously accusing these three Jewish young men? If you remember back in chapter 1, when Daniel was promoted by King Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also promoted. So there's a good chance that these Chaldeans felt envy or jealousy towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they felt like they were passed over for a promotion that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got. But regardless of what their motivations were, King Nebuchadnezzar was mad. In fact, verse 13 tells us he went into a furious rage. And he said, bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to me. Now, at first, when he addresses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's almost incredulous. Like, was a fiery furnace not scary enough to get you to do what I wanted you to do? He says, is it true? And then he continues on to instruct them in what they should do. Bow down when you hear the music, or else you will be immediately thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, this is significant, because if you look back in verse 6, He didn't say, if you don't bow down, you'll get a second chance. He said, if you don't bow down, you'll be immediately thrown into a fiery furnace. Which begs the question, why does the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, care at all to give a second chance to these three young Jewish men? Is it possible Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have done a wonderful job at the position they were assigned? Is it possible that Nebuchadnezzar is actually a good leader and doesn't want to lose these assets to his kingdom? I think it's possible. But then, after threatening them again with the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar does something you should never do. He actually challenges God's power. He calls out God. And this is the question he uses. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I can only imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at each other going, no, he didn't. (laughs) Again, friends, this is something you should never do. And this question is almost the exact same question that we see in 2 Kings. When the king of Assyria, when threatening King Hezekiah in Jerusalem to attack King Hezekiah in Jerusalem with his army of 185,000 men, This is almost the exact same question he asked King Hezekiah. And if you remember how that story plays out, the night before they're to attack, the army of Assyria is encamped outside of Jerusalem. And scripture says the angel of the Lord came and wiped out all 185,000 soldiers. Friends, can you imagine what it felt like to be the king of Assyria and come out of your tent that morning and just see your army is all decimated? And you're actually all alone. Scripture says, and all scripture says, is the king departed and went home. Friends, never a good call to challenge our God's power. Even if you're the king of a historic 
world empire. But this leads us to verses 16 through 18. And it's here we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's here that we're going to focus the rest of our attention this morning. But I'm going to read their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Let's stop there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are answering that question. What God can rescue you out of my hands? Our God can rescue us out of your hands. Our God is able. Cedar Mill family, there is nothing you or I will face. There are no circumstances in this life you or I will face. Economic catastrophe, cancer, or the coronavirus that our God is not able to rescue us from. Our God is able. But let's continue with the rest of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response in, the, in the verse 18. Our God is able, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Brothers and sisters, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew their God was able to rescue them. But even if he didn't, they knew that he was God and they would not worship or trust another. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if God rescued them from the fiery furnace, he was God. And if God decided to allow them to suffer in the fiery furnace, he was still God. Again, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith was not dependent on, upon the circumstances that they face in this life. Their faith was dependent upon the unchanging promises and person of their God. I love that. I love how their faith wasn't dependent upon their circumstances. Our God is able, they said, he is willing, but even if he doesn't, we will still worship him alone. They had this faith that trusted God even if the worst thing happened, even if they were burned alive in this furnace. The kind of faith that not only believes God is all-powerful and he is able to do all things, but the kind of faith that trusts in his goodness, even if. Even if I lose my job. Even if I lose my marriage even if I lose my child, even if my cancer comes back or I get COVID-19, even if I am not spared from the pain and the suffering that is right in front of me, the kind of faith that trusts that God is at work and he is working all things together for our greatest good and his glory. I want that kind of faith, don't you? So how is it that we develop this kind of faith? That's the question that we want to explore this morning with you. And if you're taking notes, um, write this down. First, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recounted God's faithfulness. They were able to say, our God is able, our God is willing, 
because they saw him come through for them over and over and over again. They had not had an easy life. They were taken from their home in Jerusalem and were captives in this foreign land. And they had survived imprisonment and execution order. And they got, they got to see God in his faithfulness show up for them time and time and time again. And he had given them favor with the king. And he had given their friend Daniel the ability to interpret the king's dreams, saving them from execution. They knew that their God, the God who had rescued them repeatedly, was able to save them again. And the more fires they had walked through, the more they had seen God's faithfulness. And the more they had seen God's faithfulness, the more confidence they had in his ability to rescue them in this current situation. Now, I know some of you are walking through trials. You're walking through suffering and pain. I know some of you are experiencing fear or abandonment um, or loss, grief. Uh, and you may wonder at times why it doesn't seem that God is showing up in your circumstance. Or you may wonder, why is he not intervening in the way that I think he should in this moment? I have been there. We have been there. In fact, just last summer, we were there. Um, we had a child living with us um, through the foster care system. And honestly, I didn't feel that God was showing up in the way that I wanted to or the way that I thought that he should. And we were pleading with him to heal her. And we knew he was able. But as time would go on, I noticed my prayers were changing, and I was crying out, saying things like, why are you not healing her? This makes so much sense. Like, do a miracle here. I know that you can do it. And as I say that now, I realize, you know, I was basically telling the God of the universe, the God who spoke all things into existence, that I know how things should go. It's like I believe that he's able and I believe that he is willing, but it's that even if he doesn't part, that I really struggle with. I really want a God to do what I think that he should do. And yet in that season last summer, one of the things that he brought to mind over and over and over again was the countless ways that he had been faithful in the past, the countless ways that he had been faithful to the children that had come through our home. And when we took time to pause and reflect and recount his faithfulness, we were able to face this new situation knowing that he is faithful. That's who he is. And like Paul mentioned earlier, who he is doesn't change based on our circumstances. So where has he shown up for you? What do you need to recount today? Where has he been faithful? How has he saved you? How has he loved you? How has he cared for you? And take some time to write those things down and recount his faithfulness. Second, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they clung to God's promises. So they had witnessed the fulfillment of many of God's promises, and they knew that God would either save them in death or he would save them through death. So either way, they knew that he would deliver them. They knew that they would either be delivered into God's presence through this fire or that he, they would be spared and protected from the fire. They were fully persuaded of the promises of God and in their obedience to him. 
And like Paul said, their faith was not dependent upon their circumstances, but it was dependent on the person and the promises of their God. They trusted that he is who he says he is, and he does what he says he will do. That God will work out all things ultimately for our good and his glory in Romans 8, 28, and that nothing can keep us and nothing can keep them from believing these promises. No threats that they were up against, no consequences, and no punishment from this king. And we too can cling to his promises, his promises of deliverance that we see in his word, his promises of redemption, his promises in Romans 8, that he will use all things for our good and his glory and that nothing can separate us from his love and the promise of his presence that we see all throughout scripture. I love in Isaiah 43, the promises that we see there. Um, in verse one and two, he says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And third, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rested in God's plan. They had no idea if they would be delivered from the fire or through the fire, but they rested in his plan for them. They understood, too, that God often allows painful circumstances that may seem contrary to his good nature to point the world back to him, to create good for our lives and build our faith, and to give him ultimate glory. They understood that we don't always understand the bigger picture going on and that God knows better than we do. I love how um, Tim Keller sums up Romans 8, 28. He says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 9. So regardless of whether or not they were going to be burned up in that furnace, they rested in the fact that God is still good he is still gracious, he is still merciful, he is still sovereign over all things, and he is still working in all of the unknown. And that whatever his sovereign plan is, they could rest in it, even if. We see this in the story of Job. The Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man. He was faithful to God and he trusted God. And through reasons unknown to him, he went through an inordinate amount of suffering. So he lost his property, he lost his money, he was stricken with illness, and he lost his children. And Job's first response in all of this in Job 1.21 is that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He submitted to God's will, even though he didn't understand it. And at the end, in Job um, chapter 42, after all that was taken from him and that had been restored to him, he said to God, I now know you can do all things and that nothing can thwart your plans. No matter what fires we face in this life, nothing can thwart God's plans. His plans will prevail. We can find rest in that. And as I think about the story of Job, 
I can't help but to think about the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus was there, sweating blood, crying out to the Father, if it is all possible, take this cup from me. And yet in complete submission and surrender, he says, not my will, but thy will. And he willingly went to the cross. And it's on the cross where Jesus experienced the most excruciating, painful circumstance, the weight of all of our sin, all of our pain, all of our suffering, to bring about the greatest good, our restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. He entered into our suffering and experienced separation from God so that whatever it is that we face, we don't have to be separated from him. And he did all of this because of his perfect love for you, for me. And God was at work in the fiery trial of the cross, in the most hopeless of all circumstances. And he was at work in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in Daniel's life, and Job's life, and in your life. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, conquering death three days later, the pain and suffering that he took on for us was transformed into the most joyous, triumphant, and victorious outcome. And it's because of what Jesus accomplished there on the cross for us that we can confidently say, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God is able, he is willing, and regardless of what trials we face in this life, he is worthy of our worship. Cedar Mill family, we'll finish with this. In a moment, we've asked Pastor James to play the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the writer of that hymn, Chicago attorney Horatio Spafford, was a man who experienced many fiery trials in this life. In 1871, his only son, at the age of two, died of pneumonia. And because he was heavily invested in real estate, the great Chicago fire that happened that year devastated his family financially. But two years later, as their family recovered financially, he and his wife, Anna, decided to take their family to Europe, including their four remaining children, all young daughters. But just before they were to leave, Horatio realized he had some business he needed to attend to. So he and Anna agreed that she would board a ship and go to Europe, and he would board another ship a few days later and follow behind. But a few days into their journey, the ship that Anna and the girls were on collided with another vessel. The ship began to sink. Anna grabbed the girls, raced to the main deck to get them on a lifeboat. But the ship sank rapidly. And hours later, Anna was rescued, floating on debris, and the girls were gone. When she arrived in Wales, she sent a telegraph to her husband, Horatio, that simply said, saved alone, what should I do? When Horatio got that telegraph, he boarded a ship to race to be with his wife. A few days into his journey across the Atlantic, one of the crewmen invited him into a room privately to inform him that they'd soon be passing over the place where his daughters perished. It was also about that time Horatio penned the hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, thou hast taught me to say, 
Whatever my lot, it is well, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, our God has not promised us a life of prosperity and ease. He's promised us a savior. And if we have him, no matter what circumstances we face in this life, we can say with Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul. So in a moment as we sing, can I invite you to sing this hymn like you mean it, to sing this reality, this truth over your life and to your God. Love you, Cedar Mill Bible Church. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, The truth.